Hello and welcome to Historical Hysteria. This is another special episode on the ongoing Taliban conquest of Afghanistan. To the surprise of no one in the country, there is one solitary holdout against total Taliban domination, the Panjshir Valley. If Afghanistan is the grave of empires, the Panjshir Valley is the executioner's axe. So far, the Taliban have not even tried to take the small province just 100 kilometers north of Kabul. And for the people of the country and the Taliban, it holds a great spiritual importance. During the rule of the Communist Democratic People's Republic of Afghanistan between 1978 and 1992, they could not take the valley. During the Soviet occupation of 1979 to 1985, the Soviets could not take the valley. And since the founding of the Taliban in 1994, not a single Taliban force has set foot in the valley. The Panjshir was the center of the Northern Alliance resistance against the Taliban and the center of the reconquest of the nation in 2001. During their rule, the Taliban would send wave after wave of attacks against the valley, only to be thrown back again and again. And as a new Taliban nation rises, the Panjshiris have fortified their valley home once again for possibly a very long siege. So, who are the Panjshiris? Who are the lions of the Panjshir? And who is their enigmatic hero, Shah Massoud? To answer this, I will start at the beginning. It is sometimes said not a single enemy soldier has ever set foot in Panjshir. This isn't quite accurate, but it is close. Some local historians have even claimed that the valley turned back both Alexander the Great and Genghis Khan, though I personally cannot verify this at the moment. Unfortunately, some of the information about the valley's history is in archives which are inaccessible, to say the least, at the moment. The Panjshir Valley is a small valley about 100 kilometers north of Kabul. It is guarded by a pass so narrow most trucks must move single file to get through, and the sides of the valley are towering, impassable, snow-capped mountains. Inside, it is lush and prosperous. Fruit grows in abundance along the meandering river, and in the hills, emeralds and lapis lazuli are found in rich seams. Panjshir means five lions, and has been a prosperous and noteworthy region for millennia. The Mughals complained mightily of its towering mountains during their conquests, and it was against the valleys of the Panjshir that the Soviets would break again and again. Internal Afghan politics have always been complicated. Since the days of the Silk Road, they have been complicated, thanks to the imposing natural barriers that make it so deadly to large armies. Though Afghanistan has in fact repeatedly become part of various empires through history, its cities have usually enjoyed special rights and privileges not accorded to others due to their wealth and difficulty in pacifying. Now, Afghanistan as a national concept only comes into being loosely around the 18th century, then more firmly with the founding of the first Afghan state in 1823, the Emirate of Afghanistan. The Emirate and all subsequent governments ran into the same problem as all the empires that had run the country had run into. Independence. Because of Afghanistan's mountainous terrain, anytime even the smallest tribe goes into rebellion, it can take years and vast armies to pacify them. Subsequently, the emirs, kings, emperors, presidents, and general secretaries of the various states of Afghanistan all ran into the exact same problem. Solutions varied. 
prior to the rise of communism. However, the king of the Kingdom of Afghanistan, 1923 to 1973, took a very simple approach to governing the disparate tribes. Don't. Instead, the king acted as a kind of mediator between the various tribal interests, while only really employing authority over Kabul and some other cities. This is very oversimplified, but is a topic all on its own. In 1973, King Zahir Shah, known for his ability to balance tribal interests with modernization projects, left the country for medical treatment in Italy. While away, he was overthrown in a coup by his cousin, Mohammed Daud Khan. Zahir abdicated in hopes of preventing chaos. This did not work. And Khan established the first Afghan Republic as a single party dictatorship. Khan was not like his cousin, and many Afghan historians pinpoint this as exactly the moment things start to go wrong for the country, because, you probably guessed it, civil war breaks out. This is the start of a long series of endless civil wars, which have, as of recording, not ended. On becoming king, I mean president, Khan hopes to push the modernization of Afghanistan even further, destroying the delicate balance of peace, and tribes around the country began small-scale resistance. Just to complicate things further, this is when Pakistan gets involved. To try and restore balance, Khan embarked on an ambitious modernization project and invited members of the Communist People's Democratic Party to join his government. This is the point where ominous thunder would sound. Officially though, the nation was unaligned or neutral in the world, and Khan began wooing the West as well for development. Take a wild guess what happens next. In 1978, Khan is overthrown by the communists, and now the tribes get angry. The tribes had liked the king, and they had tolerated the president, but communists were the final straw, and resistance began to spread. On March 15, 1979, just 11 months after founding the DPRA, army mutineers and rebels tried to seize the city of Herat, triggering brutal reprisals. And by April, most of the country was in open revolt. With control of Afghanistan slipping, the next step surprised no one. A total Soviet invasion. And on Christmas Eve 1979, the Soviet Union engaged a full-scale attack. And here we get to the tiny and unassuming Pan Shia Valley, which for the last seven years has been quietly minding its own business. The valley has a population of just 100,000. What could they possibly do to anger the Soviets or the communists? The Soviets installed new leadership in the DPRA after assassinating the old leadership, and what had been a relatively contained insurgency spread into a full-scale war. Army units across the nation mutineered and went on the offensive, backed by local militias. They were immediately massacred. Soviet air power decimated them. And here we finally meet young Ahmad Shah Massoud, who was kicking around in the background this whole time. Ahmad Shah was born in 1954 in the Panjshir Valley. He studied engineering in Kabul and spoke five languages. While at university, Massoud became involved with a Muslim youth organization, and in 1975, at just 19 years old, Massoud joined an uprising against the then Khan government in the Panjshir Valley. Things did not go well, and villagers were unfriendly to them. They were forced to disband. However, the seeds of revolution were planted. The failure of this first uprising helped trigger a schism in political Islam in the country. Massoud's party, Jamiat-e-Islami, would split between moderates and extremist factions. Massoud joined the moderates. 
the extremists would found Hezbi-e-Islami, who would later drive the country into civil war, and with whom Muhammad Omar, the founder of the Taliban, would later join. In 1978, with the communist takeover, Massoud organised his allies and formed another revolt in the valley, which again, did not go well. However, in this failure it gave rise to the command that would define him, that of guerrilla leader. Massoud this time found the villagers far more friendly to his aims, and embracing guerrilla tactics, he pushed the government forces out of Panjshir completely by 1979. With a base, the newly branded Mujahideen began attacks from the valley on the precarious Soviet supply lines running down the death roads of Tajikistan. By 1980, Massoud's Mujahideen now numbered to the colossal number of 1,000 men. To tackle this devastatingly large army of ill-equipped Afghans, the Soviets sent three battalions and 1,000 Afghan soldiers into the valley. The Mujahideen were immediately overrun, and Massoud retreated to the mountains. However, two failed attempts at seizing the valley had taught him and his men how to retreat and how to hide, something that came very much in use now. Massoud hid and waited, and once the main body of troops left, the Mujahideen re-emerged, pushing the Afghan garrisons largely out of the valley, re-securing it. Over the next five years, the Soviets would launch 11 different assaults on the valley. Every time, the Mujahideen disappeared into the mountains, only to reappear and retake the valley. The last major offensive against the valley would occur on April 19, 1984. Some 13,000 soldiers attacked Panjshir Valley, but this time the Soviets left nothing to chance and the Red Air Force carpet-bombed the area, decimating every village. If there was no one left alive, they reasoned, there would be nowhere for the Mujahideen to hide. Massoud, however, had found out about the attack, and evacuated the entire population of the valley into the mountains. The Soviets engaged a massive all-out assault on the now-empty valley, landing troops across the mountains to block escape, and of course, failed spectacularly. Though the Soviets succeeded in retaking the valley, they failed in destroying Massoud's Mujahideen, and by September, they were again forced into retreat. Outmanned, outgunned, outspent, 10 to 1, 100 to 1, Massoud disappeared and reappeared like magic, turning this tiny 90-kilometre-long valley into an inescapable quagmire of death. This is Afghanistan's Afghanistan. And after 11 all-out assaults, it still stood free, the only province to be completely liberated from the Soviet occupation. As the Soviets began evacuation in 1985 through 1989, Massoud's Mujahideen followed, taking control of much of the northeast, from Panjshir to the borders of Tajikistan. Despite a decade of fighting the Soviets, Massoud never lost his burning hatred for Islamic extremists and described the growing influence of these groups as a cancer on the country. Unlike other Mujahideen, Massoud was very concerned about what came next. Though still at war with the still-existing DPRA, he began setting up the North East as its own model country, establishing courts, police, and governance. The communist DPRA would hold on for another three years against the onslaught of the Mujahideen. But with the collapse of the USSR in 1992, the government quickly fell. Massoud would enter Kabul in April 1992, and the war was effectively over. Negotiations began to form a new nation, and after nearly two decades of fighting, the nation 
naturally collapsed straight into civil war. With the fall of the communists, many in Afghanistan wanted a chance for peace, a new, genuine republic, and others did not. The moderates set up a representative government encompassing all forces, ethnic groups, and religions across Afghanistan, and Massoud was made defense minister. Unfortunately, the Islamic extremists in the country had no interest in sharing power, and Hezbi Islami, backed by Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, marched into Kabul to seize control. By this point, moderates have been fatally weakened by decades of fighting, leaving Massoud's personal force as the only force for stability in the nation. Rashid Dostum, who controls the northeast, and Mazar-e-Sharif pulls a sort of down-low, too-slow move and pulls out of the government and also attacks Massoud. Massoud now finds himself at war on multiple fronts. However, this time he has support. His northeast is a paradise compared to the rest of Afghanistan. Despite the chaos, Massoud's areas are free and safe, an oasis in a desert of constant death and destruction. And they act as a rallying call to moderates around the country. Young men from across Afghanistan come to fight for Massoud and for peace. But Massoud has war on multiple fronts now. His forces have descended into brutal all-out urban warfare in the streets of Kabul. He is in unfamiliar territory. During this period, he will set up free medical care and commit to providing humanitarian aid to Kabul. He is the only leader to do so. However, this will also mark his darkest hour. During particularly heated fighting, his forces will begin looting, raping, and murdering in some neighborhoods of Kabul. It is quickly brought under control, and Massoud's forces are notably the only forces during the civil war to only have one such occurrence. While the various militias squabble over Kabul, a new group forms in Kandahar, the Taliban. Massoud and the Afghani government will briefly secure Kabul in 1995, and the other militias will finally realize that the band of extremists maybe are something to worry about. Following their lightning advance, the Taliban are briefly halted by Massoud, who airlifts his soldiers around the country to try and stem the tide. But Massoud's forces are tired and worn from the constant fighting, and he has no real allies. Quickly, he is pushed back to Kabul. The Taliban lay siege to the city for two years, and Massoud weakened, retreats to his fortress, the Panjshir. In 1996, the Taliban seized control of Kabul and controlled two-thirds of the country, establishing the Emirate of Afghanistan. Despite being fatally weakened, Massoud will maintain control over much of the northeast, using the same tactics he had been using for over a decade. He forms an alliance with Rashid Dostum, his former enemy, and several other militia commanders, who control the northwest of the country along the Uzbek border. Together, they form the United Islamic Front, later called the Northern Alliance. However, Dostum is pushed out of the country by 1998, leaving Massoud and his lions alone against the Taliban. During this time, Massoud guarantees universal human rights in his provinces, as well as democratic elections, women's education, and full legal gender and religious equality before the law. His regions will become an oasis in the totalitarian terror of the Taliban, by this point, the Panjshir Valley had gained almost mythic status in the country. It had held out against 11 Soviet invasions. 30,000 Soviets had thrown themselves against its walls. Massoud had thrown them back every time, and the Panjshir Valley, just 100 kilometers north of Kabul, was still flying the flag of resistance. 
a beacon to every enemy of fundamentalist control, and the Taliban needed it gone. The Taliban barely held power. Without Pakistani guns and Saudi money, they would likely fall, just like everyone else had. From his days as a student, leading just a few dozen friends, Massoud now commanded 20,000 soldiers. The Taliban launched assault after assault on his territories, and were thrown back again and again. Outgunned, outspent the lions of the Panshia, ensure no Taliban force set foot in their valley. Reporter Jason Burke travelled to meet the general in 1999, and described him like this. Quote, now he is tired. His sharp brown eyes are weary, and grey flecks his thick black hair. He seems less the wily fighting fox, and more the cornered stag. End quote. But by the next year, the Taliban have still failed to seize the valley. So turn to Massoud's supply lines to weaken him. Attacking along the northern border, they attempt to close his links with Tajikistan. They are again repelled. At this point, Massoud's front line extends 500 kilometers north from Pangaea, and he is vastly outnumbered. Yet, by 2001, he has lost little territory and is still defiant. Early in the year, Massoud leads a desperate delegation to Brussels to address European Parliament. He begs for funding and support against the Taliban. He outlines the extremist support for the Taliban, the dangers of pan-Islamist extremists, and their perverted interpretations of Islam. And most importantly, he outlines the extremism coming out of Saudi Arabia and Pakistan. The world turns a blind eye. Before leaving for home, Massoud approached US representatives. Massoud has long run a large and effective intelligence gathering operation in the country. His sources in the Taliban-controlled areas had found information about an imminent attack on the United States by Al-Qaeda members based in Afghanistan. On September 9th, two Tunisian journalists approach Massoud for an interview. They are Al-Qaeda suicide bombers. They have explosives hidden in their video cameras. Massoud is fatally wounded and dies several hours later. Two days later, the world forgets Massoud existed when two planes hit the World Trade Center, killing 3,000 people. Fifteen days after this, the US send a unit of CIA operatives to the country to recruit an army. Where do they find this army? The Panshia Valley. And on the 12th of November, Northern Alliance forces take Kabul. Despite how the Afghan war is often presented, during the first months of the invasion, the majority of the fighting was conducted by Massoud's lions, backed by small units of special forces and US airstrikes. Over the next 20 years, the Panshia Valley has stayed an oasis of peace. Until August 8th, 2021, when the Taliban launched their first major attack on the valley. Reports are conflicted, however rocket fire hit towns near the valley's entrance, and some reports indicate 10 people were taken hostage. On August 15th, Mazar-e-Sharif, one of the Northern Alliance's traditional strongholds, fell. Over the last four days, every province in Afghanistan has fallen to the Taliban except one, and the tiny Panshia Valley once more stands alone. Whether it will once again be Afghanistan's Afghanistan is difficult to say. So far, the Taliban have avoided attacking, and it is now, as it has always been for 50 years, the symbol for moderate Afghanis everywhere. But unlike in 1996, Panshia today stands totally alone, isolated in a sea of extremists. In 1999, as the Taliban prepared 
for another assault on the valley, Masood wistfully said, We have lost our young generation. They have no homes, no schooling, nothing. They have just grown up with war. That is all we have time for today. Thank you for listening, and good night.